Okay, so here's my topic for this morning. First of all, before I get to the topic, Alex, thank you very much for inviting me. Uh, it's so good to see you. It's a great honor to be here. Praise God. I am uh, uh, blessed and honored to read the Bible, and I'm blessed and honored to proclaim the Bible. Uh, I don't know all of you. I don't know most of you, but uh, as we are brothers and sisters in Christ, I do want to say that I love you and that I'm honored to be standing in front of you today. And concerning Pastor Alex, what a wonderful pastor he is, what a wonderful preacher he is, I would like to put in a commercial plug for a Bible conference that I have something to do with. You can look it up on your phone. Uh, if at any time during the sermon it gets boring, just pick up your phone and pretend like you're looking at a Bible passage and look at ocbibleconference.org, Ocean City Bible Conference, which is always the Sunday through Wednesday after Labor Day in Ocean City, New Jersey. This coming September, uh, Pastor Alex is going to be speaking at that conference two years ago. Andy Davis spoke at that conference. It's a great conference. Look at it, and we'd love for you to join us in September in New Jersey. For this morning... I'm going to be speaking on the subject of the church and her glorious message, which is just a fancy way of saying evangelism. But I'm going to take a, an approach this morning that is not conventional. Now, I have nothing against conventional approaches. I myself, in preaching about evangelism in the past, have used conventional approaches, and I have benefited from hearing others take conventional approaches, and I'm sure that in the future, when I speak on the subject of evangelism, I will be using conventional approaches. And by conventional approaches, I mean things that you have heard in the past concerning motivating people to evangelize. So, for example, we are commanded to evangelize. As the Father sent me, so send I you. I will make you fishers of men. Go, and as you're going, make disciples. I have no problem with that whatsoever. I have no problem whatsoever with the brilliant logic of Romans chapter 10, and that is, how shall they hear without a preacher? Well, the implied answer is, they shall not hear without a preacher. Or the promise of beautiful feet that we read about in Isaiah 52 or in Romans 10. Or we look at the example of the Lord Jesus Christ who shared the gospel. He spoke to the woman at the well, he shared the gospel with Zacchaeus. By the way, if you're looking for a sermon title with reference to Zacchaeus, try this one out. Say hello to my little friend. <laughs> you have the example of the Apostle Paul and his burden uh, and his demeanor saying that I could wish that myself be accursed for my kinsmen according to the flesh. And we have the the command that we are to be good apologists, 1 Peter 3.15, that we're always to be ready to give an answer or a defense to anybody who would ask us the reason of the hope that is within us and to do it with a demeanor which is winsome, for if you're going to win some, you must be winsome, and to do it with meekness and with fear. Uh, we have the warning of that watchman on the wall from Ezekiel chapter 3, who did not warn the people and the blood would be on his hands. There's also the reminder, and this is another conventional approach, and I have no problem with this. It is perfectly acceptable to remind people that Paul was not ashamed of the gospel of Christ and that if we deny Christ before men, that he will deny us. And let's not remember as we evangelize that we are always to accompany our words with 
actions, that we are to let our light shine before men so that they can see our good works and glorify our Father which is in heaven. This is not an exhaustive list, but I think you get the idea. You, if you are a preacher, have used these motivations. There's nothing wrong with them. You, if you are a preacher or a Christian, you've heard these things. Praise God, I love all of them. I'm just going to go a different direction today. I would like to speak to you on the subject of evangelism using the direction or the motive or the uh, impetus of restoration. Restoration, taking that which is lost and restoring it. We live in a fallen world filled with broken people. I know that because you are one of those broken people. Or as the great theologian Jimmy Buffett said, we are the people our parents warned us about. We are in need of restoration. Let me tell you a story. It's a true story. I wish that it was not. I am sitting in a barber chair. Uh, my barber does not speak great English, and as I'm giving him instructions, I'm saying, please, if you will, just leave me a little bit on top so that I can move it around. I'm not a quitter. I'm going to work this as long as I can, and, and as he is cutting my hair, I kid you not, a friend of his came in who speaks his native tongue, and as he is cutting my hair, the friend sits right behind him, so I am watching me get my hair cut. He's cutting my hair, and so as to be friendly to his friend who walked in, he turns around and he is talking to his friend while he is cutting my hair. So I'm watching my hair being cut, but he's not watching it. After it was over, I, like, I paid, I walked out, I thought to myself, suddenly I'm not half the man I used to be, I have to go to another barber right now and get restoration because of what has been destroyed. We, as people, are living in a world where we need restoration. And why do we need restoration? Well, as good theologians, you know the answer to that. It is because of sin. It is through one man sin entered the world and death through sin and thus death spread to all men because all men sin. We live in a sin-cursed world where things get old and people get sick and people die. Or as Job put it, man born of woman is of few days and full of trouble. But I'm not just referring here today to our physical bodies or our diminished skills or our finances evaporating. I want to speak to you today about the place where we need restoration the most. And sadly, where we need restoration the most is the place that we feel it the least, and that is in our relationship with God. The purpose of the gospel, which is of first importance, is to bring us to God. For Christ suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust. Why? So that he might bring us to God. That is ultimate restoration. So I'm working off of the assumption today that you yourself have been restored to God through Jesus Christ and that you desire to see other people restored to God through that same gospel. Please understand, though, that as we make our way into this world, we are dealing with a broken world. Entropy has an undefeated record. Fairy tale endings are confined to fairy tales. You can make a really good living in this life if you can replace a hip or a roof or a fender and make it look like new. All of the king's horses and all of the king's men, they are laboring, but none of them can bring about restoration. You and I know that the only way that our souls can be restored is through the gospel of our Lord Jesus. 
Christ. And so I would like to speak to you about restoration. And in order to do this, I would like to use an Old Testament story. It is a story from 2 Kings chapter 8. 2 Kings chapter 8. Allow me please to pray and then I will begin to read the text. Father in heaven, thank you for the men and the women who have taken their Monday to come out and to hear the word of God. Lord, each of us who know you, Lord, we wish to see other people saved. Lord, we long to see your churches filled. And so, Father, today I pray that something could be said in the next several minutes which would give, Lord, joy and truth to people who are desirous to be good evangelists. Lord, I pray that you would stir us to want to be good evangelists. Lord, I pray that you would give us courage as we leave here, Lord, knowing that we have a message of life, and we have the only message of life. And so, Lord, in Jesus' name, please allow us now to study this topic. And I thank you, Lord, that as we take your gospel, we will see the lives of men and women restored and restored eternally. Lord, please do your work through the preaching of the word today. Fill me with your spirit. Lord, give these people, Lord, an interest in what is being said and give us, Lord, by your spirit, the ability now after hearing this word to go out and to be doers. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. 2 Kings chapter 8, studying the topic of restoration, looking at a woman who needed restoration, beginning in verse 1. Now Elisha had said to the woman whose son he had restored to life, Arise and depart with your household and sojourn or travel wherever you can. Why? For the Lord has called for a famine and it will come upon the land for seven years. So the woman arose and did according to the word of the man of God. She went with her household and sojourned in the land of the Philistines seven years. Get the picture. Elisha, who is the second most prolific miracle worker in the Bible, goes to a woman known as the Shunammite woman. Uh, she was from Shunem. So we call her the Shunammite woman. Uh, her story is this. She and her husband are given to hospitality. They know that from time to time, Elisha is going to be passing their way. And so what they do is they embark upon a construction project and they build a, they, a room on the top of their house so that when Elisha passes by, he might have a place to stay. And he was very appreciative of that. And he said to the woman, you've done so much for me. Is there anything that I can do for you? The woman said, no, I live among my people. I have everything that I need. Thank you very much, but we're well taken care of. Elisha's assistant, and I'm going to refer to him as Gehazi, which is the Western Pennsylvania pronunciation of that name. Gehazi says to Elisha, I know what this woman needs. Uh, she, her husband is already old, and she's getting up in years, and they don't have any children. They would really like to have a child. And so Elisha goes to the woman and says, a year from now, you're going to have a baby. Fade in, fade out. A baby is born. A little boy a year later. A little boy starts to grow up, and one day he's out in the field with his father, and all of a sudden he gets a headache. He goes into the house, and as he's in the house, he crawls up on his mother's lap, and there in her arms, the little boy dies. 
the woman takes the little boy up to Elisha's room. Elisha is not there at the time. He is 16 miles away in Mount Carmel. She takes the little boy and lays him out on Elisha's bed, and then she makes the journey to Mount Carmel. She has a conversation there with Elisha, and Elisha comes up with a plan. And the plan is this. He takes his staff, he hands it to his assistant Gehazi, and he says, go back as fast as you can to the house and lay the staff across the boy. Probably he was more fleet of foot than Elisha or the woman. And so Gehazi runs ahead. He doesn't greet anybody on the way. And he does exactly as his master tells him. And the woman and Elisha make their way 16 miles from Mount Carmel back to Shunem. Elisha goes into the room and has a very unusual prayer meeting with the boy and raises the little boy to life. That is the woman. That is the woman that is being referred to here. Now, the Lord has revealed to Elisha some years later that there is going to be a famine. And usually, or perhaps maybe even always, when you see a famine in the land of Israel, it is a result of covenantal sin. They have broken the covenant, and one of the covenantal curses is that there would be a famine. How bad was the sin at this point? Well, consider back in 1 Kings chapter 17 with Elijah, there was a famine which came which lasted three and a half years, and in that famine, people were dying. The famine which was about to come was seven years, so surely nobody would be able to survive if they just stayed on the land. And so, out of kindness to this woman, Elisha comes to her and he says to her, get out of here, get out of here as fast as you can, go wherever it is you can go. It really doesn't matter where you go, you just have to leave here. And things were so bad that the woman goes to the land of the Philistines and she is there for seven years. Are you with me so far? All right. We pick up the reading in verse 3. <clears throat> At the end of seven years, when the woman returned from the land of the Philistines, she went to appeal to the king for her house and her land. So what has happened here now is that the government has confiscated her property, eminent domain, nothing has changed, and she wants her house and her land back, but it no longer belongs to her. Now, in verse 4, I can tell you what it says, I can do my best to explain it, but I do not understand it. I do not understand why it has happened. This will forever be a mystery to me. The woman is coming back to ask for her land, but now the, sheen, the scene shifts in verse 4. It says, now the king, and the king at this time is Jehoram. He is the grandson of Ahab and Jezebel. He is an excessively wicked king. Now the king was talking with Gehazi. Gehazi was the servant of Elisha, but he's no longer working for Elisha. And the reason he's not working for him is because he is a leper. And the reason that he is a leper is because he tried to extort money from a man by the name of Naaman. And so now he is out of the ministry and he is, is being approached by the king. Now the king was talking with Gehazi, the servant of the man of God, that's Elisha, saying, here's what the king wants to know, tell me... All the great things that Elisha has done. Tell me all the great things that Elisha has done. As I said, I do not know why this wicked king all of a sudden one day was curious 
about the things that Elisha had done. First of all, because this king hated God. Secondly, because this king knew already some of the things that Elisha had done because Elisha had previously on multiple occasions saved this king's life. And third, because why would he want to know these things when this would not be something that he himself was interested in at all. This is really, really curious. It's bizarre. Now, the king was talking with Gehazi, the servant of the man of God, saying, tell me all the great things that Elisha has done. And while, W-H-I-L-E, verse 5, while he, Gehazi, was telling the king how Elisha had restored the dead to life. Behold, anytime you see the word behold, it means paint a picture in your mind's eye of what is happening. Behold, the woman, that is the Shunammite woman, the woman whose son he had restored to life appealed. She appealed while the conversation between Gehazi and King Jehoram was taking place. The woman whose son had he had restored to life, appealed to the king for her house and her land. And Gehazi said, my lord, O king, oh my, what's happening here? Here, right here, right here and now is the woman, and here is her son, whom Elisha restored to life. So see if you can envision this in some way. We're not told exactly where this happens, uh, Gehazi is a leper at this time, so I'm sure he's not in close proximity to the king. I'm sure he's not giving him a back rub or something while they're talking. I'm sure that there is some distance. The king wants to know, you know, summon Gehazi, get him to come here. Yes, king, what would you like? Could you please tell me everything that Elisha did? Well, again, I don't understand why he would want this information, but fair enough. And so Gehazi is standing in front of the king, and he says, King, you want me to tell you the great deeds that Elisha has done through the power of the Lord. Well, where do I start? Well, for example, at the beginning, when Elisha, his, Elijah, his predecessor, was being taken to heaven in a chariot, swing low, sweet chariot, the mantle of Elijah fell. Elisha catches it. He hits the river Jordan. He crosses on dry land. He gets to the other side. And he is in Jericho. When he is in Jericho, the water is bitter. He puts salt in the water, and the water is made sweet. He moves from there on to Bethel. As he's walking through Bethel, there are some young people who mock him because he is bald. And two she-bears come out of the woods, and they maul the 42 young people to death. There was another occasion when a guy had borrowed an axe, and it was a metal steel and it came off as the man was chopping the tree and it fell to the bottom. But I saw it myself, King Elisha, through the power of the Lord, caused that uh, axe head to float. There was another time when a guy made some stew and the stew had poison in it. But he put some flour in the stew and the stew became edible. There was another time, in fact, you were there, King, when you and two other kings made your way into a battle and you were about to die because there was no uh, water you were about to die of thirst and elisha without any rain or without a river caused water to come and gave us a, a, a victory there 
Um, you remember when an entire army was blinded by this man and they were all led into your presence. King, there are so many miracles. I don't even know, like, I, I could go on and on all day. But King, if you would like to get to the greatest miracle that I ever witnessed with my own eyes, there was this, there was this little boy. And I'm telling you, King, he, he wasn't sick uh, he wasn't comatose. He was dead. I mean, he was cold. He was blue. He was purple. He was dead. And, and he was laying on this bed. And, and, and I got to the boy first. It was kind of spooky. I had to walk in. I put my staff across the boy. Elisha walks in the room, lays on top of the boy. The boy sits up and starts to sneeze. And then all of a sudden, the boy comes back to life. King, I'm telling you, it was the most amazing thing that I have ever seen in my life. I saw a dead person raised to life. King, if you could have seen it, oh, my Lord, the king, that's him. He's right there. The one I am talking about right now. Here's the woman. And here is her son. They walk into the room as he is describing the miracle. That is amazing. That is amazing. Now, notice what happens after there is this confluence of the woman and her son and the king and Gehazi. It says in verse 6, When the king asked the woman, she told him, so he confirms the facts, so the king appointed an official for her, saying, Restore all, that's our word for the day, the doctrine of restoration, restore all that was hers, together with all the produce of the fields from the day that she left the land until now. I only want you to give her her house back, give her her land back, and anything that potentially could have grown on that land during those seven years, restoration, 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 it all comes back. Isn't that a wonderful story? Isn't that a wonderful story of restoration? What in the world does that have to do with evangelism? What principles can we accurately draw from that text which will enhance our evangelistic efforts? I have three of them. They all begin with the letter P. And I'm using alliteration now, not so as to help you remember the points, but I'm doing it to irritate those of you that don't like alliteration. <clears throat> Number one, our glorious message is always controlled by the design of providence. Our glorious message is always controlled by the design of providence. What is providence. Well, listen to the abstract of principles from the Southern Baptist Seminary, Article 4. It says, God from eternity decrees or permits all things that come to pass and perpetually upholds, directs, and governs all creatures and all events, yet so as not in any wise to be the author or approver of sin, nor to destroy the free will and responsibility of intelligent creatures, end quote. What does that mean in plain English? It means that God is in control of everything, absolute control over all things. It is God orchestrating the movement of the largest planet 
and him moving the smallest molecule and everything in between. He is God. He is sovereign over all. He has a lock, L-O-C-K, on all things. He limits, orders, controls, and knows everything. Or, as the Westminster Confession says, he ordains whatsoever comes to pass. There is no such thing as luck. If luck exists, then the God of the Bible does not. There is nothing that is random. There is nothing that is chance. Everything is preordained and everything is by design. And providence is a friend to restoration. What are the chances? Let's just pull out your calculator and see if you can do the math on this. What are the mathematical chances that after seven years, that is approximately 2,550 days, that on the exact day, the exact hour, and the exact moment when Gehazi was telling the story of the Shunammite woman and her son, that at that moment they would walk into the king's presence? It wasn't choreographed, it wasn't planned. Gehazi himself was shocked when this woman and her son walked in. What are the chances of this happening? What are the odds? Are they like 100 to 1? Or maybe a million to 1? Perhaps a billion to 1? So you're telling me there's a chance. The, 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 The mathematical odds are insurmountable. But I want to submit to you today that I believe that the chances of this happening are actually 100% if God is the one that is directing traffic. And I would say that the chances of it happening are actually 0% if he is not. But in this particular case, God was the one who was directing traffic. And it was instrumental in her restoration. Now let's talk about how people who are sometimes... Um, unfairly and sometimes fairly, uh, but people who believe in the sovereignty of God, how we sometimes are accused of being fatalists and how the doctrine of restoration as it relates to providence, how we are sometimes criticized and maybe sometimes rightly so. You see, the doctrine of providence is sometimes viewed as an enemy of evangelism by those who are opposed to Reformed theology, and their reasoning will be something like this. Since you people believe that God has an elect, and that those elect will be saved, and that that roster cannot be changed, therefore you see no need to evangelize. In other words, providence gives you Calvinists an excuse not to witness. And to them, I would say, wow, sadly, sometimes for all practical purposes, their accusations are backed up by the fact that we don't evangelize. And to that, I would say, shame on us. But that does not change the fact that providence is a friend to evangelism. Today, I want to submit to you that providence and the sovereignty of God are not enemies to evangelistic zeal, but rather they are very good and useful friends. For the same God who ordained the end, and that is that his elect will be saved, has also ordained the means by which the end will be accomplished, and that is through the sharing of the gospel. So every encounter that we have 
with another human being during the course of our entire lives is a divine appointment. Here's a pet peeve that I have, and it's become very popular in recent years, and I don't know where it came from, but something will happen where the Lord works something out which appears to be good, and the explanation of that will be, someone will say, you know, I believe that was really just a God thing. Well, I don't disagree that it would be a God thing, but can you tell me anything that has ever happened that is not a God thing? All things that have ever happened are God things. Every encounter that you ever have with another human being on this planet is a result of divine appointment. It might be permanent, like who your parents are, or or your siblings, or your children, or your neighbor. And it might be temporary, like who you were sitting beside on a plane, or who your waiter or waitress happens to be in a restaurant, or everything in between. And not only are those encounters by design, but everything leading up to those encounters are by design as well. Your background, your interest, your intelligence, your experiences. What I'm saying here today is that you are always and in every situation where you are because God has in providence directed your steps. With that in mind, I want you to live in that awareness. And to view those with whom you have a confluence as being placed there by God. Now please don't misunderstand me. I am not saying that we should not go out intentionally and share the gospel. The woman went, W-E-N-T, went to King Jehoram for this restoration. We should intentionally be looking for people to share the gospel with. But what I'm saying is that whether we are going out intentionally or whether we are just living life, living next to a neighbor, living in a house with our parents or our children or going to work or whatever it is that we are doing, being assigned our seat on an airplane, it is all part of God's plan. And so what I would like to ask you to do today by way of application is to live in the awareness that God directs the steps of his unsaved elect in order to clash with those who are his saved elect. Let me give you a crazy example of how providence was used in evangelism in my life. I had a friend who was a Jewish atheist heroin addict. Uh, He lived in another state And for many years, I tried to witness to him. Um, Long story short, he loses his job. He becomes homeless. Uh, He is on heroin. He gets hit by a car, and he is taken to the hospital for two reasons. Number one, to help him with his injury, and secondly, to get him detoxed and off of the heroin. When they took him into the hospital, they had to destroy his clothes. They were unwearable. You could not launder them and salvage them. They just threw them away. So for several weeks, he is in the hospital wearing nothing but a hospital gown. There was a nurse that was there who was taking care of him. 
she was not a Christian. She was living with her boyfriend. She wanted nothing to do with God. But she was a very loving and compassionate person. As the man is about to be released from the hospital to a rehab center, which is 40 miles away, this nurse, who is not a Christian but very compassionate, goes to one of the friends of her mother, who is roughly the same size as this man, and says, can you give me some clothes because this man cannot leave the hospital naked? And so some clothes are donated. Fast forward, the man is moved to a rehab center. That's about 40 miles away from the hospital, and he finally calls me. I hadn't heard from him in a long time for obvious reasons. He tells me where he is, and lo and behold, wouldn't you know it, that the city where he was transferred into a rehab center, I happened to have friends there who were Christians. And so I started this group text with about 16 people on it, and I said, strange request, do any of you know where this rehab center is? Yes, 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 they, they know where it is. I said, well, I have a friend who's there. Uh, he was hit by a car, he is a heroin addict, he is an atheist, and he is Jewish, and for years I have been trying to get the gospel to him. Could somebody please go by and visit him and take the gospel to him and just be loving and kind to him, maybe take him a meal or just do something to show him the love of Christ. As the text goes out to these 16 people, one of the ladies responds and says, I think I know who this man is. My daughter is a nurse in such and such a hospital and she has been taking care of him for the last month or six weeks. Another guy is on the text feed and this is the man that she had the young girl had inquired about giving this man some clothes he said i'm on my way to the rehab center right now i don't know this man i don't know what he looks like but when i walk in i will just look for the guy who's wearing my clothes <laughs> long story short these people and one lady in particular relentlessly loved this guy. They would go by and see him, visit him, pray with him, pray for him. And this one lady in particular would relentlessly share the gospel with him to the point where he would call me up and he would say, I'm so thankful that your friends are coming to visit me, but this one lady in particular, would you please tell her to back off? I'm, I'm Jewish, I'm an atheist, I don't believe in Jesus. As time goes on, these people don't give up, and what ends up happening is God regenerates this man, he saves him, and here's the point of all of this. After he got saved, he said, the one thing that got my attention more than anything else is I thought to myself, what are the odds? What are the odds that your friend, you would have friends in this city and that there would be someone who would be willing to give their clothes to me who would be among those who would come and share the message of the Lord with me? Providence was used as a friend to bring this man to the Lord. Providence is a friend of evangelism. So, those that you come across, they are the people that you are to share with. Here is the second way in which our glorious message is 
illustrated in the story of the Shunammite woman and her risen son. And that is our glorious message is communicated most effectively in the context of pain. What is the greatest pain that this Shunammite woman ever experienced? Well, without question, it was the death of her son. I, I don't want to meditate upon this too long. I cannot even imagine what she felt as she held her little boy in her arms and he died. And then can you imagine what she felt as she walked 16 miles to Mount Carmel and then 16 miles back with her son dead? The pain must have been indescribable. But please understand that in the grand scheme that without the pain of death there never would have been a resurrection and had there not been a resurrection when she walked into the king and asked for the restoration of her land he would have said who are you why are you interrupting me no I'm not going to give you your land back things are tough all over ma'am we have just had a famine for the past seven years I'm very sorry you lost your land but get in line, there are a lot of people around here who have lost their property. But the pain of losing her son was necessary in order for her son to come back to life. That was a necessary ingredient for her to have a viable audience before the king. Pain is used in the proclamation of the gospel. And when you combine providence and pain, that is a really effective combination. Take, for example, the story of Joseph. If Joseph isn't the favorite son, then he isn't hated by his brothers. If he isn't hated by his brothers, he doesn't get sold into slavery. If he doesn't get sold into slavery, he doesn't go to Egypt. If he doesn't go to Egypt, he doesn't meet Potiphar. He doesn't meet Potiphar. He doesn't meet Potiphar's wife. If he doesn't meet Potiphar's wife, he doesn't get accused of rape. If he doesn't get accused of rape, he doesn't go to jail. If he doesn't go to jail, he doesn't meet the cupbearer. If he doesn't meet the cupbearer, then it is not discovered that he can interpret dreams. And if that is not discovered, then the dream of the king will not be interpreted. And during the years of plenty, they will not store up the produce and if they don't do that then there is an enormous famine in the land and everybody in that region dies and if everybody in that region dies then his family dies and if his family dies then his brother Judah dies and if his brother Judah dies there is no King David and if there is no King David then there is no King David's greater son and if there is no King David's greater son then you're going to hell and so am I what had to happen in order for us to be saved is the pain of this guy being hated by his brothers, sold into slavery, falsely accused of rape, sitting in that jailhouse for two years and being forgotten until Pharaoh would have his, 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 uh, his dream. That's why Joseph at the end, when his brothers come to him and they're panicking because dad is now dead and he's probably going to get vengeance now as any normal person would, he says no. No hard feelings. I mean, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good as it is this day to save many people alive. Now, if you take any one incident in there and you isolate it and you put walls up on either side of it, 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 it is random, it is useless, it is painful, it does not help in any way. But if you get in your Romans 828 helicopter and you lift off and you look at the big picture, knowing that God causes all things, including pain, even the pain of a son that has died, God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love him to those who are the called according to his purpose. So I don't know the pain that you are going through today. I really don't. But I can tell you that it is for a purpose. 
It is for a purpose. For maybe, and I'm just guessing here, maybe pain is the necessary ingredient that God is using in your life to make you the evangelist that you need to be. For the more pain that you go through and you process properly in light of God's sovereignty, believing that whatever my God ordains is life, the more sympathetic and empathetic and sensitive and understanding and compassionate you will be. And it will give you more endurance. It will draw you closer to God, making you a better evangelist. But I can't speak about pain without speaking of the greatest pain that the world has ever known. That was for six hours on Mount Calvary when the spotless Lamb of God bore in his own body our sins upon the tree, where his visage was marred more than any man. When they got done beating him, he didn't look like a human being. There he hangs in nakedness and humiliation with his beard jerked out and the crown of thorns crushed onto his head and my sin on him and your sin on him and the wrath of God being poured out upon him never has such pain been known pain is not only part of the process which leads us to where we need to be in providence but our message our message of evangelism is pain and in and of itself but it is not pain which we ourselves will experience it is pain which was experienced for us the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. Restoration comes about through pain, and without pain there is no restoration. Let me move on now, please, to the third and final point. And that is that our glorious message must be accompanied with a demonstration of divine power. All right, so here's what I mean by this. We really have to just stop and meditate and think for a while what is happening with evangelism. <clears throat> you have training seminars. You are equipped with Bibles. You are told how to approach people and how to talk to people. You are given answers to their objections. You give them the facts that God is holy, that we have sinned, that Christ died for sinners, and that people must repent and believe. You give them the warning about hell. You give them the promise of heaven. All of these things are essential. But I hope that you have been a Christian long enough to know that even if you are in the right place at the right time with the right person and you have the right message and you have the right demeanor, and you have lived a consistent life in front of these people, do you understand they are dead? They are dead. Music stand that sort of is supposed to be a pulpit. Come here. Come on. It's joyful over here. Come. Come to me. Come to me, all you who are labor, weary and heavy. Just come to me. Come. It's not going to move. Do you understand that our evangelistic efforts require a resurrection? It requires a resurrection. Listen to the words of Jesus when he says this in John chapter 5, verse 22. There must be power. Jesus says, I'm sorry, John chapter 5, verse 21. 
For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. It is the resurrection power of Jesus Christ that brings about restoration. The reason that the king was willing to restore her property was because a previously dead son was now alive and standing by her side. There is something different about this woman. Follow the argument from the lesser to the greater. If a wicked king, hearing the testimony of a leprous, defrocked clergyman, was willing to grant total restoration to a woman that he didn't even know based upon a boy who was dead but was now alive, but a boy who would eventually die, how much more will a loving, eternally good, intentional, heavenly Father not grant ultimate, eternal restoration to his elect when he sees his perfect, eternal son standing by our side, proof of our justification, a son who will live forevermore. The reason that I am going to live forevermore is because I am in Christ, and if Christ lives forevermore, then so do I. You see, King Jehoram was not looking at the merits of the Shunammite woman, oh, you build a room for the prophet. That had nothing to do with it. He was looking at one thing and one thing only, and that was that there was a risen son who was standing by her side. And in the final day, when we all stand to be judged, I hope that God is not looking at me. I hope that he is looking at his risen son who is standing beside me. God the just is satisfied to look at him and pardon me. And so... As you go out and you take this message of salvation and evangelism, restoration to people that you're talking to, I know you're afraid to do it. I've been, I've been a Christian since 1977. I'm still afraid to do it. I'm a pastor. I'm supposed to not be afraid to do this. I have my apologetic arguments lined up. I'm still afraid to do it. I'm still timid. I, 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 I still think, what good will it do? I still think to myself, this is not the proper time to do it, but I need to look for a better time to share the gospel. I give myself, you don't know how many examples I give myself as to why I should not share the gospel with people. What moves me and what motivates me to say something is this third point. It's not that I'm going to be convincing. It's that if a risen Christ is alive who has been raised from the dead has power, he certainly has the power to raise this person to life. And so as you go out, move as you will move providentially. Understand that pain is going to be used to bring about God's purposes, and go in the power of the risen Christ because ultimately that is what is going to bring about restoration and the salvation of God's elect. Is that that's enough or we're done? <laughs> let's, let's, oh, prayer. All right, good. All right. Father in heaven, thank you for these men and women who have listened so attentively to this word today. Oh, God. Forgive us that 
we, how, how wicked we are, Lord, that we are ashamed sometimes to speak your name or that we blush when, when an opportunity comes up. Oh, Lord, please uh, forgive us of that sin and, Lord, restore us that we might go in the power of the Spirit taking your message to the lost. Please give these people courage. Give me courage as we go from here. And, Lord, would you please use this wonderful means of salvation to draw and to save and to restore your elect. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen.